0: Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. We'll be taking a summer break over the next few weeks, so we have a few stories to cover this week before we go. A little bit later in the podcast, I'll be talking with Dan Wirth, as we ask, should schools have greater oversight of edtech? And I'll be talking to John Roberts to take a deep dive into the key areas of concern around the government's SEND reforms. But first, I'm joined by reporter Callum Mason. Callum, welcome back. Hi, Josh. Now, the story we're taking a look at is the proposed pay rise for school support staff that could actually be the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to school's increasingly unsustainable budget. I guess, Callum, my first question before we take a look any further into this story is, is just how many final straws can there be? Because it, it does seem like between this, tightening budget, energy bills, cost of living, and most recently the unplanned for, unfunded experienced teacher pay rise, that they have a full haystack too much on this camel's back.
1: Yeah, that sounds absolutely right. To be honest, um, they have had a lot of uh, sort of final straws come at them in terms of of big costs. Uh, energy being one, as you as you've just said, uh, and then a couple of weeks ago we had the unfunded teach pay rise. Um, whereas this this rise is another unfunded rise on top of that, I guess. And I suppose what school leaders and heads are saying is that. Each time one of these things happens, there has to be further cuts somewhere in their in their budget to to make ends meet, and the more you do that, the the more you decrease the quality of your offering. And at some point, there comes a point where you decrease that quality so much by the the cuts to staff or whatever that it feels like it's sort of final straw and it's unviable. I think was the phrase that some. School leaders used actually uh, at special schools to describe how, how it would become uh, for their budgets if they had to keep cutting in this way.
0: So what are the numbers for this specific rise and what kind of impact is that going to have on schools?
1: Yeah, so local authorities have, have given a, they've, they've offered a support, a support staff increase in pay of £1,925 as a flat rise. So that will go to, to all staff on, on a sort of scale. So that means that if you're on a, on a very low pay scale at the moment, you'll get a very significant rise, 10.5%. And if you're on a much higher one, you'll get a, you'll get a lower rise, so you'll get around 4%. So it's quite a aggressive pay increase in a way. And I think what, what school leaders aren't saying, they're not saying that they don't think support staff deserve this rise. They absolutely do. It's just that they need extra money to fund it, and that's not in their budgets at the moment.
0: Yeah, it does feel very similar to that experienced teacher pay rise from the other week, doesn't it? Where it's obviously something that schools would be behind if it weren't for the fact that it is unfunded.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That people have been saying for a long time. Uh, we've covered that quite a lot this year. That support staff at the moment are very. It's very difficult to retain them and recruit them because they can get paid more in other roles. Uh, often supermarkets and things they can get they can get paid more if they go there. So. It was absolutely needed for the sector for there to be a pay rise. I think the unions have said they'll consider the proposal. So it's they've not it's not sure that they'll accept it yet. But one of the unions did say it was actually higher, higher than many sports staff would have been expecting. So yeah, school leaders are saying they, they need this sort of rise if they want to be, if they want to be able to retain their staff, uh, but they they do need the extra money from from the government, from the DFE, from the Treasury to to fund this and make it viable for them.
0: Yeah, and I, I assume this is going to actually affect some schools more significantly than others. I think in, in the past on this podcast, we've talked about magnet schools mm. which attract more SEND pupils due to the provision that they provide. Those those schools and special schools, they need a significant number of support staff, don't they?
1: Yeah, so special schools have said this for a start. Said, so first of all, it's probably worth saying that support staff includes a really big range of stuff, actually. Um, including things like teaching assistants, but then school business leaders as well. Um, so yes, a lot of special schools have said that they employ, in terms of ratios, they employ a very high number of things like teaching assistants or, or classroom support staff. Um, and some magnet schools are, are similar. They said they they also employ a lot a lot of these types of staff. So it will probably cost them more. That's right. And for them, I think that's why this feels quite unviable and they're probably going to be losing sleep over this over the summer and um, planning how they will sort of do their budgets. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What about the, um, the school funding settlement that James cleverly mentioned last week, is that going to help teachers get better sleep? Is it going to be enough to cover these extra costs?
1: So the settlement that was announced last week is, is similar to what was basically announced in the spending review last, last year. Um, but what the unions have said is that since that spending review settlement was made last October, there's obviously been a series of financial events, such as uh, the war, the war in Ukraine, uh, record levels of inflation, that have meant that they don't think that settlement is adequate anymore. So I don't think that the announcement by James Cabbey last week will really do much to sort of quell these fears and and the anger that school leaders have felt over over their budgets, obviously. Funding is going up in a way, but they don't think it's going up
0: enough. Thank you, Callum. Uh, I think the issue of school budget and funding can be really nuanced, but if you're feeling like it's hard to keep track, do make sure to go check out this story and the others that we have on our website, tez.com forward slash magazine. It also leads us quite nicely on to our next story, where I'm joined by John Roberts, and funding also takes a key role. John, welcome back. Hi there. Now, consultation on the Send Green Paper has come to a close after it was extended earlier this year. The consultation has highlighted several key areas where the proposed reforms could fail or are perhaps even redundant. Could you just provide me a bit of context on this story to start with? What, is, what does the Send Green Paper cover?
2: Yeah, so, so the Send Green Paper was uh, kind of long-awaited and announced in March, and it, it sets out the government's ambition to completely reform the system for For children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities. Um, A kind of a backdrop to that I think is that there's a kind of a widespread admission that the current system is is broken. We have councils with high needs deficits collectively running into more than £2 billion. You've got something like a 96% send tribunal success rate when parents go to tribunal over their children's needs not being met and Ofsted finding failings or shortcomings in more than half of the areas they've inspected in SEND provision. So definitely I think there's a consensus that the change is needed. Um, it, it's just the, the nature of the change that's, that, that's going to be contentious. So in terms of the green paper, it proposed creating a new national ses- system for SEND standards, a kind of a new national funding system as well, uh, what they've called a kind of a framework for tariffs, um, which kind of set out how much providers should pay in providing for, for different types of need. Um, it also had a proposal to simplify the process of getting an education, health, and care plan for young people, which was um, I think that proposal was quite well received. And as you say, the consultation closed, and so what we've done this week is gone through the responses from some of the big education organisations just to sort of see how how the government's plans has, have landed in the in the school sector. Um, and I think there's there's probably two really big themes that, that kind of come out of it. One is a concern over funding. Um, and And link to that, a concern that the government's proposals don't become kind of cost led rather than need led. I think the big the big issue of contention is the extent to which a child a child can have their needs met in the education system. Um, and the government is saying it's trying to kind of address the postcode lottery um, it, with different levels of provision in different parts of the country. But I think the concern is that if they create national standards, the essentially provision will be defined by by cost and by that standard rather than by what the child's need is. And I think it's uh, the, the other big theme, I guess, is it's really hard to standardize send because by definition it's a special need. It's uh, an individualized need often that, that, that's particular to that child.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned funding there. And I think that's a good place to start uh, taking a look at these concerns because following on from the story we just covered there with Callum, It does seem to me that there's obviously going to be an issue or two here when it comes to funding for these proposed changes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the central things that the government is trying to do, and really I think the kind of central principle behind its policy change, is that it thinks too much money is going at the end, towards the far end of the system at the moment. So a child needs an education, health and care plan, and that has to be provided and that costs more money. And what the government is saying is that they want to, Improve early identification and early intervention, so a child with additional needs is spotted early and supported early in school, and then their needs are met, and then they never need a specialist provision or or, a, or anything that, that an education and healthcare plan might might stipulate. But I think there's two kind of two problems with that. So, so the government is saying that they think that once you get better early intervention, parents' confidence in the system will improve, less children will need EHCPs, and the system will work better. A couple of respondents have basically said that the government seems to be thinking it's putting enough money in and that essentially all it needs to do is almost sort of change the system so that resources are allocated differently. And the NAHT said, what evidence is there that there is enough money in the system? And it said it wants the government to do a financial assessment. Um, and then flowing on from that, I think the other worry is that cost pressures will will define the change. So what another thing that they've talked about doing is. Um, I mentioned in briefly just before, this um, system of banding tariffs where, where costs will kind of be defined, what, what, what providers should expect to, to pay. I think there's concerns from the National Education Union and from Ipsia that provides kind of specialist advice to parents um, that this could turn the system into a kind of a cost-led one, whereby provision is defined by how much the government thinks it should cost rather than provision being defined by what the kids' needs are. Um, I think that's a really big concern, some of these reforms. And Ipsia's central theme, I think, is that they think that this reform is all about driving down costs rather than, rather than improving provision. And that, that runs through a lot of the, the kind of concerns and the consultation responses we've seen.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you've also mentioned there a couple of times the education, health and care plans. And you were saying that the new ones are looked at fairly positively. However, I think there are also concerns that those new EHCPs could actually restrict parent choice, right?
2: Yeah, it's this similar thing. So one of the proposals... So the, the main idea for standardising and digitising EHCPs, I think, is kind of been broadly welcomed because at the moment we almost have a system where there's like 150 different systems up and down the country, just councils weren't given a hard and fast way to do it, or councils and health providers. Um, so standardising it, on the one hand, makes a lot of sense, I think, just from a kind of a having one coherent system. But one, one element in the Green Paper talked about there being a tailored list of settings um, that, could be, that could meet the child's needs. And again, the concern I think is just that who decides what goes on that list and what are the driving factors for it? Um, sometimes a child might have a need that can't be met in a local area. Will this kind of tailored list mean that that, that provision isn't available? And again, it goes back to that principle, will the reforms lead to a system whereby what's available and how much money have we got is the driving factor in what the provision is. Um, I mean, I guess some people might say, well, it has to be because ultimately, whatever the system is, it has to live within a kind of a a budget envelope of, of some sort. But yeah, I think the big tension is that the government, I think the rationale for the government's changes is that it just needs to reorganize things to be more, more effective and efficient. And I think a lot of people in the sector think, ultimately, the government ought to work out how much this costs, you know, how much SEM provision in the country reasonably costs and fund it accordingly. And that's where I think the tension has been in the current system and probably will be in the future one.
0: Mm. Now, the Green Paper also outlined the need for schools to be more inclusive. But aren't there some concerns about how this could actually be achieved in practice, about how inclusion is both defined and ensured?
2: So, the- SEND review has happened at the same time as the government's launched a schools bill and the two things are, one, one's a white paper and a bill so it's going straight into the legislative stage so it's a bit further ahead but there's a kind of a question mark about how well aligned the two things are and our school, the Association of School and College Leaders have kind of um, directly referenced that in their response um, and said that because the government has talked about the system needs to be more inclusive, mainstream schools need to be more inclusive for children with SEND but Askell points out that um, the government have talked about having um, strong multi-academy trusts being big inclusive trusts, but they haven't actually defined what that is, what that should mean and exactly what is expected of schools and trusts, either in the green paper or in the white paper. And Askell sort of said, without that, that's, that's kind of a hole that, that, that undermines the government's plans if it not actually defining and setting a kind of a firm expectation of exactly what it expects mainstream schools to do.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for joining me today, John, and outlining some of those key concerns. I think you've put together a Twitter thread as well, which goes over those concerns and a few more. And also, of course, the article which covers everything in full detail. So do make sure if you're listening to go check those out on our website, as always, tez.com forward slash magazine. Now, do you remember when you first learned just how much data social media companies collect on you and then just how much data, it seems, every company has on you, and the obvious data privacy concerns that came hand in hand with that. It feels like a while ago that these issues first came into our awareness, doesn't it? And it feels like we've learned from that, or at least had the time to try and learn a lot of these lessons. But it seems there are fears that schools could be sleepwalking into much the same scenario. Senior editor Dan Worth joins me today to go over this story. Dan, welcome back. Hi there. So, Dan, the pandemic has accelerated the use of edtech across education, but it's also raised some concerns over giving unfettered access to pupil data without due diligence. Of course, we've seen the ways that data held by social media companies in the past can be used with malicious intent. So there are fears now that we need to do something now to prevent the same happening with student data. I guess the argument against this seems to be that any oversight could actually stifle innovation at edtech startups. Surely, though, Dan, there's a balance to be found here, and I would argue probably heavily weighted towards safety.
3: Yes, I mean, as you just summarized there, the... Um, the- the rise of edtech in schools is something that was already happening, but the pandemic really accelerated it. And and in, for the most part, you know, it was a benefit. It made schools could continue teaching and learning operations using all these tools that, you know, they, they sort of jumped on because they needed to. But as this piece that I wrote this week um, based, you know, started with a conversation I had with an academic at the London School of Economics called Dr. Velaslava Hillman, who has done a lot of research into the rise of ed tech and the fact that it's happening without any real oversight. And that's where the problem comes is that fundamentally anyone can set up an app, sell it to schools. If the school sort of sees a value in it, maybe they'll buy it and roll it out. But really, and it's not the fault of the school, there isn't really there the expertise to really sort of, you know, know what that company, who that company is, where they're based, who owns them, what do they do with the data? What happens if they're then bought by a bigger company that then has more sort of designs on the data? You know, how much data is it collecting? And when you think about this, this is, this is children we're talking about. You know, children have no say in this really, you know, from the ages of well, fundamentally from from one through to, you know, 18. We're usually so um, sensible and, and there's lots of rules and quite stringent rules about keeping children safe in schools and, you know, what we let them have access to at certain ages, of course, quite correctly. Yeah, when it comes to ed tech, there seems to be very few rules at all, really. Yes, there are data protection legislation. There is things this thing called the children's code from the ICO. But again, it doesn't, it's more sort of it's it's up to the organizations to make sure they're following it. Schools don't really have much help in actually knowing that the organizations are following it. And what came out from this piece talking to various people in the sector was should there be some form of oversight of ed tech companies by some sort of independent body that schools could then go to that website talk to them and say, look, we're thinking about buying this product from this company, what do we know about them? Are they, do they have this green tick? You know, sort of, are they acceptable? Are they considered safe to use with children? Because we've seen with social media, as you say, that when lots of data was collected, it, it can be used in ways that no one always foresees. So actually it's a very interesting piece. And lots of people sort of, I think when I spoke to a lot of people, there was a sort of, yes, actually, why are we not talking about this more?
0: So uh, what benefit would there be to having a, a regulatory body? What kind of form would that, would that take? Of course, there are already checks in place. I'm sure everybody's familiar with GDPR, which hmm. is in part a reaction to previous data misuse. Uh, what kind of form would oversight of edtech actually take?
3: Yes, I mean, I think uh, obviously people were kind of saying you'd probably have to set up some sort of independent Body it wouldn't it probably couldn't sit in the heart of government, but it obviously would have a sort of government. It would be spun out of government, um and and you know these things. We have the Gambling Commission, you know, we have the Advertising Standards Authority, we have Ofcom. So the idea of some body that's set up to sort of oversee edtech doesn't seem so far removed from reality. And I think the idea is when I spoke to other people, they were saying it wouldn't necessarily be so much that the, this organisation would. Sort of prove the credentials from a pedagogical point of view, because that would be very difficult. And, you know, how, who ultimately could ever say that it, it, it works, because based on what parameters, you know. But it was more like about saying this organization could, their work would be to look at any company that is selling to a school, that has designs to sell into a school and therefore be used on children. And they would, and it would basically almost like a checklist of like, who are they? Where are they based? Do they, do they say they follow GDPR? You know, have we seen evidence of policies that show they, you know, did GDPR? Is there even a helpline? You know, can you ring them up and speak to a human being if you've got a problem with the technology or you will have a question or something like that? Again, just to show that these people, it's a legitimate enterprise or whatever it might be. And I think it was someone, um, uh, NACE, who said, uh, you know, that would be that would work well, if you can imagine that sort of checklist type thing that a company could sort of prove. And and what came out of this was that quite a few people said, actually, ed tech companies almost... The, the good ones, the ones that want that are, you know, legitimate and have the best intentions of children and, and schools at the heart of what they do, should probably welcome that because yes, it might be a bit more work, it might be some form filling, mm-hmm. no question there, but they should want to show they're legitimate and and want to sort of get that badge of honour so they can use that to help continue their work with schools.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that kind of mark of approval then definitely being a a selling point for edtech products. Yes that's right. And so moving on what about advice for schools now? I'm sure they actually can't avoid the the pressing need to adopt edtech at the moment so what can they do before this kind of oversight is in place?
3: Yeah so I mean obviously if, if in, ideally they might have someone in, in particular in a trust you might be able to turn to someone in a sort of top level IT role or a legal role who maybe can help so if you're a school leader if you're not buying something I mean Again, every trust will have a different mechanism, whether leaders are buying their own software, or it might be that it's all mandated by the trust. But certainly there may well be help from above. If you have the budget, you could even potentially bring in some sort of outside, you know, there'll be all kinds of technology consultancy companies who might have to come in and and sort of verify how a company operates. Of course, though, in reality, people might be left on their own to try and do this. And I think some of the sort of, uh, a lawyer gave us some sort of tips of Things that, you know, you should be able to ask a company for references, maybe talk to maybe other customers. You could ask about their financial standing, you know, they're probably not going to give you the ins and outs of everything. But, you know, it might be a good way of understanding, well, yeah, these, this is a quite a proper enterprise. You know, even things like where are they based? Where is the head office? Where is the data stored? Um, you know, can you ask to see their GDPR policies? I think it comes down to that sense of not just taking everything at face value and thinking, oh, this is a whizzy, shiny, fancy tool. And look, it's going to improve our outcomes. on, I mean, we can track this really well. Yes, it may do those things, but find out more about the company itself, um, which again is difficult because that is not always easy to find and it's not in a busy work day, hard to do. And that's why the idea, again, someone at a school could go on a website, type in the name of the company, get this information laid out, does seem quite appealing. At the moment, though, that doesn't exist. So we have to do it ourselves. And, you know, when we're talking about tools that you're going to use on children in the same way that a health and safety audit might have to take place for a trip out or you know, some new, a new building on site. Maybe actually though, schools should start to think, well, actually we have to do this because, you know, we're going to use this on our children. We've got to keep them safe. We've got to know what we're doing with them. That's sort of some of the things you might have to start thinking about now, particularly because as we've said, EdTech is only going in one direction with an education.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the comparisons here with the early days of, of social media are pretty apt. Mm. The, the warning signs are there for us this time, so... Getting some sort of oversight set up pretty quickly is uh, is pretty imperative. You know, time is time is of the essence here on this one. Definitely. Well, as always, the full article is available on our website, test.com forward slash magazine. It's a great write-up there by Dan. If you're anything like me and you're completely fascinated by all things in the world of technology, it's a must read. Dan, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, please do make sure to follow the podcast on your platform of choice. We're going to take a break over the summer and we'll be returning just in time for the new school year. But until then, please do enjoy your break or what you can of it. And we hope you can join us again next time to tune in to the Tez News Podcast.